Psalms, there's three sets of Psalms that deal with the feasts or deal with, uh, with the worship of Israel. Uh, and they are, they're called high-level songs or the word, there's praise. And you'll see, we've already looked, uh, Psalm 111 and 12, both were praise the Lord. But here, verse, the chapter, or Psalm 13, or 113, uh, starts with praise the Lord, but it's a different class of psalms. It's the praise psalms. And these are the psalms that were sung during Passover. Or they would have two of them, Psalm uh, 113 and 114, that they would sing before the Passover meal. And then Psalm 115 through 118, they would sing after the Passover meal. And we see that's what the Lord Jesus did. Remember, he sang a hymn before they left. And that's, these were the hymns that they sang. So you can imagine. I mean, that kind of puts us close to him. What would it have been like to be with the Lord Jesus, to hear him singing the words of his song? They were inspired by him. And yet he was singing these psalms uh, at the Passover. And, of course, that's the last Passover, the Last Supper. And they would be sung at the... Uh, Pentecost or Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement or the Feast of Tabernacles. Then you had the pilgrimage psalms, which were uh, Psalm 120 through Psalm 136. And those were the the psalms of ascent or uh, which were everybody going up to Jerusalem and everything around the Middle East. Uh, you'll see Paul going up to Jerusalem from Caesarea or down to Caesarea from Jerusalem. Everything was up, so the so those psalms would be for the pilgrims going to the feasts, or other people believe that they might have been hymns that were written and the steps to the temple and especially up the wall of a temple uh, were uh, the sun would hit them at a certain hour, and each one of those psalms you would have uh, a choir came up once an hour and sing in the temple these psalms of um, 120 through 136. Now, I'm not, so there's a question about the psalms of ascent, but uh, we'll see that that's what it's called uh, later on. And then 146 through 150 deal with just the daily synagogue worship. And you'll notice they're short, and yet they call people to worship. So we see now these first uh, set of Psalms, 113 through 118, is um, uh, we see that the special interest is because of uh, the Lord Jesus singing these. And we see that in Matthew 28, 30 and Mark 14, 26, where it says that they sang a hymn. And of course, they probably sang several hymns before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so Psalm 113 and 14 were sung at the Passover. Uh, as a result of that, let's just read this psalm now. And again, we see praise the Lord, which means what? Hallelujah, or hallelujah means praise the Lord. So praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, 
that he may seat him with princes, when the princes with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home, like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. So we notice that uh, someone's called this a circular hymn, where you begin with and you go through the uh, the the items of praising God for, and then you come back to praising God. And so we see, first of all, verses 1 through 3, an unceasing praise. Those praise the Lord, uh, O ye servants. So it's a call to worship. Praise the name of the Lord. Now, whenever you see the name of the Lord, of course, there's no other name given among heaven. Of course, the Lord Jesus. And that wraps up all the rest of the name. But he reveals himself through his names. Uh, Elohim, the all-powerful one. Jehovah, the covenant God, the integrity God. He can never break a promise that he makes to us. And then we see I am that I am, the all-sufficient one. And all those different terms that we see in the Old Testament. El Shaddai, uh, the God's presence. So all those terms are God's character. He reveals himself to it through his name. And so we praise the Lord for his name, name or names, of course, um, uh, with the Lord. Uh, his character is revealed by his name um, and his attributes. That's his power, his love, his integrity. God can't, it's impossible for God to lie, as the book of Hebrews tells us. Uh, uh, they're, re- they're revealed through his name. And the word forevermore. Notice the rising of the sun to the setting and the going down thereof. And of course, that's all during the day, all your waking hours and forevermore. So we see that the, that what are we going to be doing in heaven? We're going to be praising the Lord. What are the angels in heaven doing today? The cherubim and seraphim, what are they doing? They're praising God. Now, of course, we're going to be doing more than that, but it's going to be with an air of joy and rejoicing. And so we see that the Lord tells us to praise him. Now, this psalm was probably uh, was written by the intrinsic evidence uh, within it. It was a post-exilic psalm. What we mean by that was since it was written after the um, after Babylon came back, but a lot of people now are uh, Jews are all over the world, and this is when between the Old Testament and the New Testament and actually before the end of the Old Testament, synagogues were started. And because it was, they were scattered all over the world, and 10 men in a certain location could begin a synagogue, and they would you know, get a rabbi or whatever else. And so we see that the, these psalms were set up for worship, both in the temple as well as going to the temple. And so we see then that he says... First of all, the Lord, so we see, first of all, unceasing praise. And then when you really praise the Lord, think of his attributes. And here we see the Lord is high above all nations. Now, if this is something that we need to remember. Uh, I tell you, I get discouraged about what I see going on in Ukraine and North Korea. And now China looks like they're massing troops to, to invade Taiwan and all these different things. And then we look at our own military and young men aren't wanting to go in because of that, of the woke situation as well as a lot of other things. And so we're in a bad shape. And yet God is the one over the years who has protected us as a nation, even in spite of sometimes our own stupidity. 
And yet we see that God raises up one and casts down another. But whatever it is, we know that also the Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So the Lord is, is governing the affairs of men and the affairs of nations. I don't totally understand it. And that's why someone, I just got an email. Someone said, uh, do you believe? And they were going into some politician. I'm backing up and just saying, I'm, I'm going to try to stay clear of making uh, prophetic announcements or anything else. I could tell you what I, you know, I, I said a long time ago uh, that it looks like, you know, with the president administration that I thought Taiwan would be the first, not Ukraine. But uh, there again, I, we see how different things are. But uh, I really, uh, I'll, okay, here I am, I'm talking to you. So I'll make a, you know, Taiwan looks like it's going to be attacked to me. I mean, just all the things that are going on. And China is really our major adversary. And yet uh, I can't control it. All I can, you know, the, one, the sad thing about watching the news today is that you see all these things going on and you see all the wickedness that is going on and you can't do a thing about it except pray. Of course, now that's enough. But at the same time, we realize that God controls the affairs of men. But who would have ever thought, I was listening to uh, uh, John Kennedy, the um, senator from Louisiana, and he was reading back to the, one, uh, to the uh, Illinois, uh, the people in Illinois that's trying to get this gay agenda into the schools. And he had, he had him at the Senate hearing. And he read some of the books that this guy is wanting, that has uh, in the Illinois library. And folks, I wouldn't read them here. I mean, just the filth. And it wasn't, and like someone said, um, you know, he's not talking about heterosexual. He's talking about everything is right down the line, just perversion. I mean, everything that's outside of marriage. And one, one gender, whatever you want to call it these days. And it's just total perversion. And that's what's being promoted by our Illinois school systems. And uh, fortunately, uh, uh, you know, he was reading all this uh, and they were telling him to stop reading it in the Senate floor. And he said, well, you know, we're, you're telling the kids to read it in classroom and we can't read it here. I mean, we're talking about six-year-old kids. With this stuff, And you're going, ah, I can't do a thing about it other than pray and really seek the Lord's face. And uh, and even really the way it's turning out now that if you really make too much of a uh, a stink about it, then all of a sudden you're a terrorist <laughs> or whatever. So what, what do we do with all this stuff going on in our country today? I, I And of course, you say, well, one political party or the other. They're all wicked. I mean, they're just a bunch of wicked people up there. And uh, nobody has a corner on morality uh, in either party. But uh, here we, every time you really think, uh, that's one reason I don't publicly, um, or very rarely do I ever publicly endorse um, a candidate because what's well, just as soon as you do, they'll do something, you go, oh no. And you realize that, uh, you know, they got problems and they embarrass you. And so I tried to stay out of the endorsing uh, category. But uh, here we see that he says he is sovereign over the nation. So I can go to my Lord and know that I got somebody more powerful than anybody on the earth. He's more powerful than Putin, isn't he? He's more powerful than Xi or whatever the guy's name is. 
is, or you name the politician here in the United States, he's more powerful than all. He's, he's sovereign over the nations. But then next, he he rules the universe. And notice he says, uh, "He is glory above the heavens, who is like to our God, who dwells on high." And so, every little thing, it's just when I say unspeakable praise. How do you praise a God? And how do you even cope with a God who deals with the universe is so big that they can't even explain it? I mean, okay, the universe is the universe is uh, continually expanding. That's what we hear. Okay, what's this, what is it expanding into? In other words, we don't know that it's infinity. We do not understand infinity or never-ending or forevermore. Remember, as a kid, there was Ben Casey. I think it was a junior high because... Ben Casey was a doctor, and he had that certain shirt with the, the little lapel things that, or the little shoulder things that pull off the little button. Anybody, anybody remember that? Or was that just a fad down in my high school? But you weren't cool unless you had one of those pullover jumper-like shirts with the little buttons up here that you could pull off, and you know, like Ben Casey had, and one would be on and two would be off, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Remember that? Oh, come on. Am I that old? Uh but uh, I remember Sam Jaffe, who was uh, the older uh, resident or whatever they call him, um, there at the hospital. He would begin every one of those uh, uh, those shows with man and draw a picture, you know, the circle with an arrow, woman, and then with the plus on the bottom, uh, birth, death, and then they'd go infinity. You know, and then they would go into the, and it was always about something where you just couldn't put it all together at the end because it was about life or death. And the one I remember is a guy kept telling, I bet you 12 dozen roses that I won't come out of this hospital. And old Ben Casey was saying, yeah, you will. And so the guy died. And the last last scene in the movie or in the show was 12 dozen roses showed up at the hospital and they were billed to Ben Casey. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, just some of those things, you know, that you realize that, that you know, what's death? What's eternity? I'm going to live forever. That's scary. There, uh, Job said, remember? He said, uh, if a man dies, will he live again? And yes, he will. And so we see that uh, he rules the universe and it can't be, life can't be, nothing could be measured. But then he humbles himself. Notice he humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. Something very interesting yesterday. I went to a, I guess she's just about ready to become a full-fledged doctor. I think she's, there's resident, then something else, and then whatever. And uh, she's right ready to be the doctor. And she's an ophthalmologist. And I was talking to her. And, of course, the older you get, the more doctors look so young, especially the young ones just coming out of school. But uh, I was, and I said, um, so you're going to, and she mentioned a couple of things about retinopathy and all this kind of stuff. I said, well, is that a specialty? And she said, yeah, there's about six or seven different specialties just for the eye now. It's not enough to be an ophthalmologist. You've got to be a retinopathist, retinopathist, whatever, uh, or 
there's five or six different, and she named them. I'm going, my, oh, my. It would t- you would have to be, I mean, I would have a difficult time being an atheist and being an ophthalmologist. I mean, to just the design of that thing. And we talk about the universe and its great expanse. But then you look at the little eyeball. And you, Isn't it great? Everybody been in there where they put that little thing up to your eye and you look into the, and they, they flash your, and they, they take a picture of the back of your eye and all that kind of stuff. Um, and just to see all that and to realize that uh, we're talking about people that will make a career out of one of six different specialties just on the eye. I wonder if that's the way it is with the ear. I mean, I guess they're going to pretty soon not have just uh, uh, bone special. Well, they they already have uh, uh, podiatry, and I guess they'll have a finger specialist and toenail specialist. You know, what if they're going to become so specialized because everything is so phenomenally made by an almighty God who has made the expanse of the universe and yet we see that also that he is the microcosm as the macrocosm of creation. And so to think of that and then to think as we sing that song, uh, the wonder of it all, how could he love me? You know, billions of people and yet he zeroes in and knows me by name and he knows everything about me. That is phenomenal. It's be, it's, unspeakable i can't understand it can you if you can't explain it to me you know but just it's beyond the dimension of us to understand and yet we've got a great god that has made the heavens and the earth and then everything that dwells in it in him all things consist and that's the case of all that's uh colossians 1 16 through 18 but that means that every little cell in my body, one little cell can go wrong or develop cancer, and it changes my whole future. And yet he's the one who knows every cell in my body. Just unreal. Well, then why does good things happen to bad people, or why does bad things happen to good people? And all that? Because he's sovereign. God does what he wants to do. And... We've seen with Paul, all the things that Paul went through were for the glory of God. We wouldn't even know about Paul if he hadn't gone through a lot of the things that he went through. And at the time, I'm sure Paul didn't understand it, but God did. And so we see that uh, he humbles, or he humbles himself. In other words, he condescends to man's lowest state. Of course, he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. And become in the likeness and became in the likeness of man. And so he, the God of the universe, decided to confine himself to a body. Again, tell me how explain all that. He could have called ten thousand angels and yet he died alone for you and me. I that's just beyond me. How could he be so great and yet so small? So we see that this is something now, remember, this is a Passover song. So what are they doing? They are singing and they're praising God. And then they are remembering how big he is. That is why 
you know, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed power, hallowed be thy name. In other words, look how big he is. Think of his name there again. Uh, his name's wrapped up in a name, the name Jesus. But at the same time, you know, all, he revealed himself through his names. And of course, he is called, of course, the one name that gets you to heaven is what? Jesus. And so we see that uh, all the, everything about his character is wrapped up in those names. And, the name, and of course, it begins with Jehovah and ends with Jehovah, the, the, the God of promises, the covenant God. And whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. There again, that dimension. I don't understand how, what does everlasting mean? Uh, and I've talked to, we've laughed about it and talked about it. I don't want to play a harp on a cloud all, you know, for the rest of my life. Um, and even praising God, I want to do it. I'm sure there's all, uh, a, a trillion different ways of doing it. It's going to have to be for eternity. But uh, how can I go through heaven for eternity and not get bored? I don't know. But it's going to be a whole lot better than going to hell and getting bored. <laughs> so, and there again, I don't think I'll get bored in heaven. So, but I just don't, everything about heaven comes to a situation where I can't understand it. I just, you know, it's too big. It's too awesome. And, uh, and so, because I'm limited. The Bible tells me that, and, or Solomon says, he has put the world in our hearts that we do not know the end from the beginning. In other words, we are limited by time and space. We don't understand time and space. And so, uh, that we can't, well, I don't know the end from the beginning. I didn't have a choice at all when I was born. I don't even remember when I was born. Anybody remember when they were born? <laughs> and uh, so there again and I don't know when I'm going to die but like I said I hope I don't die I want to be and I hope you do too want to be part of that rapture generation that never dies and that will be a very special generation in heaven you know the ones who go to heaven with the Lord uh, and his calling and so we see the, un- the unspeakable praise that we have the unsearchable praise whatever you want to call it there and then the unforgettable praise. Now, here we go, and we go back, and we specifically remember and, uh, the nation Israel and how it relates to them as well as to them personally. And, of course, you go back to the Passover, and what was that? What was the one thing that the Passover, when, when did it get started? The Red Sea crossing, or, of course, the, uh, the last night in Egypt, and then going into... Uh, Going, being delivered by God from bondage of Egypt uh, through the, the waters to, of course, eventually the promised land. But uh, notice he tells us in verse 6, verse 7, excuse me, he says, He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap. Now, is that what the King James says, ash heap? He lifts, lifts the needy out of the ash heap. What's the, what's the term there? Dunghill. Okay, ash heap. Uh, the more accurate, accurate is the ash heap. But uh, here we got, he, uh, out of the dust of Israel, uh, they were destroyed. Israel was, there was no reason for Israel to exist. 
they're the only nation in the world that was constituted as a nation, went into captivity and came back and reconstituted as a nation. Now they're destroyed again. And now for the second time, they're reconstituted as a nation over thousands of years. Name one other country that's ever happened, that happened to and have the same type of government or the same type of, you know, ethics and so forth and not the same type of government. But, uh, but uh, the idea of coming together as God's cho- chosen people. What other country or people in the world has ever had that happen? Not even close. And so we see that uh, out of the dust of Israel, or out of the dust of the earth, Israel was restored. Remember the barren land that uh, because of Israel's disobedience, it lay barren for 70 years until the Lord brought them back into the land. Now, so he raised Israel and he'll raise men out of the dust. But out of the ash heap or the dung hill, as King James says, uh, but actually the ash heap was in Job chapter 2, verse 8, same word, where he went and he, uh, of course, scraped himself with an old broken piece of pottery and he would take the ashes and kind of put on just kind of as a salve. But the, uh, this would, this would be the place where people who had lost everything and were afflicted to the point that they couldn't take, couldn't do much of anything else except somebody bring them food, where during the day the sun would heat the ashes up and, of course, they can keep the coals burning. Then at night that would be the one place that they could have a little bit of warmth. Can you imagine being by an old fire like that day and night for weeks on end? you think you'd start feeling and, and smelling like smoke and dirt and grime and everything else. And that's the way Job was. And of course, he had his great miserable comforter friends that came and really helped him out, didn't they? No, they just made it worse for him. But we see that, uh, but did God raise him out of the ash heap? Yes, he did. But you know, it's interesting. Uh, all the way through that, we hear that, you know, you'll hear people say that Job tells us why we suffer. That is not true. You will not find one verse in the book of Job where God told Job why he suffered. God didn't tell Job there was a big spiritual warfare going between, on between him and Satan. And that Satan bet the Lord that, uh, that Job would fall if he, if he could take away his material blessings. And God says, okay, let's try it. Because I got confidence in Job. And all the horrible things that Job went through. And yet God blessed him. And at the very end, there's a series of over 40 questions. Where were you, Job, when the foundations of the earth were laid? He went all the way through creation, talking to Job about what happened. And Job just said, he didn't have an answer. And then the Lord says, okay, Job, um, I'll tell you later. I'm sure Job knows now, but we know that God restored him and blessed him. He brought him out of the sheep and gave him twice as much as he had before. Now, but he never learned why he went through it. God never told him in all those passages why he went through it. Can we trust God when he doesn't tell us? Pastor, why is this happening? I can't tell you why it's happening other than God has promised that all things were together to the, uh, for good to them that love him, love God. 
to the called according to his purpose. So my answer to that is, do you love the Lord? Uh, are you called? Do you know him? Do you, are you positive that you are saved and that you are following what he says? Then I can't tell you why he's doing it, but I can tell you and I, that he promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. And in the end, he's going to receive the glory. And when he receives the glory through you, it reflects back on you big time. As we saw last week, uh, when we look in the, at the Lord and in, in his word, he reflects it back on us and we become more like him. Well, when God receives the glory, he has a way of sharing it. Now, he will not share it if we grab it. But when we glorify him, he has a way of reflecting it back on us. So when it comes from him, what a blessing. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on the way, on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. And so the glory that God wants to show to us or show through us. And uh, if Job hadn't gone through the trials, would we ever know about Job? It's the oldest book in the Bible. It was probably written before or during the time of Abraham because of some of the feasts and other things that we see in there and some of the other um, situations. It's, the internal evidence says Moses didn't, it was written before Moses. So it was probably written uh, a couple hundred years before Moses. And so, or several hundred years before Moses, because Moses was in, in uh, Egypt for 400 years. But uh, so we see that uh, the oldest book in the Bible doesn't tell us why we suffer. And yet it reflects the glory of God. And so he raises the the uh, person now, the ash sheep. And then that he may seat him with the princes. How many times in the Bible do we see Joseph and Job and other people in the Bible that they go from, uh, from famine to feast or from feast to famine back to feast? That God blesses them in spite of their troubles. And so we see and then again, I like what uh, this commentator said. He said, uh, uh, when Jesus sang these words in the night of his betrayal and arrest, it must have occurred to him that in a sense, he was the one who would be lifted from the dust of the grave to the highest place. I think it's true. I mean, he, the, the horribleness of sin. I've said many times, I think the one impression I remember uh, in grad school, there was a, guy, uh, I had a professor by the name of Ward Anderson. And um, we were talking about those Old Testament sacrifices. And it just occurred to me, I just out of the Navy and everything, but I never had really studied them. But I said, this is gross. I mean, gallons of blood pouring from the altar and all those, and 10,000 sheep. Can you imagine how much that stunk around Jerusalem whenever... Uh, Solomon made the great feast at the temple. And that was just for him. I mean, hundreds of thousands of animals were killed. And they talk about how that they probably had uh, conduit pipes or pipes that would let the blood flow away from the altar and all that kind of stuff. And now that the, the priest's robe, uh, the, the, the hem of them would be so wet with blood. And I'm going, I mean, he didn't go into that. I just started thinking about what he was talking about. But I said, that, you know, that is really... But I never will forget what he said. He said, but so was the cross. 
And you think about the cross and all the things and the shame that the Lord Jesus went through. You couldn't tell that he was a man. Uh, Isaiah 52 tells us. He was from his sea from his head, his hands, his feet. Uh, the thorn, crowned brow. I mean, if anybody's been hit in the head, you know what it is to bleed from the head. It just cut, you know. And so, and the thorn, and then the, the beatings and the lacerations and the nails and all. I mean, he was, he looked worse than a piece of hamburger meat up there that hadn't been drained. I mean, it was a, he became sin for us. Now, the Old Testament was a picture of sin, but the New Testament, of course, he became sin for us. And why would he do that other than his great love for us? And so sin is ugly. And he depicted that on the cross. And yet, of course, he came and he was buried in the grave, but he rose again. Where is he now? He's on the throne on high. Joseph went down into the pit but he became a prince in the same way with David and others. So we see that the Lord has ways of doing that. Now, in the last passage, we see some things that kind of connect together. Um, he says, he grants the woman a house, or to keep house, as King James says. But it talks about, what about the barren woman? And we see many of them in Scripture. But in the Middle East... A woman who didn't have children uh, was considered, or maybe she had a curse, maybe there's something wrong with her, or whatever. Now, that wasn't biblical, but that's just the way society said. Uh, we know George Washington uh, didn't have children, but it wasn't Martha's fault. She had two kids before she married him. She was a widow, and so it wasn't her fault that he didn't have kids. Uh, and so we see that uh, that. You know, a lot of times it was the man who couldn't have children, but it was always blamed on the woman. And so, and we see in Scripture time after time, um, actually verses 7 through 9 are quoted by Hannah. Or actually they are quotes from Hannah, First Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. And also, Mary's Magnificat. We're already getting a little late, so we can't go and turn to those passages. But, um, but you'll see those Psalms well, those verses reflected or echoed in those psalms. And so, and of course, Mary was a miraculous birth. But uh, think about all the people. I, I wrote down some people that were barren. Sarah and Rachel. You know who Rachel was? Has, uh, and then what about the wife of Manoah, Mrs. Manoah? Who was that? Samson's mom. Samson's mom. She was barren. And she kind of laughed and said, me, have a kid, whatever. And so, and then Hannah, of course, and Elizabeth, remember, and Zacharias. So uh, she didn't have a child. And uh, and now that God, even though they were, many of these were older women. And yet God, in his grace, can do what he wants to do. After all, he's sovereign. If he can can control a nation, he can control health. And so we see he grants the barren woman a home. Now, in saying that, that you know, he's saying that uh, he's not saying that every woman who reads this verse is promised a child. And don't forget, he's talking again about Israel becoming prosperous again because uh, 
Isaiah depicted them as because of their sin in chapter 54, verses 1 through, as barren. They were a barren uh, nation. And then in chapter 66, verses 6 through 11, again, he talks about Israel being barren of spiritual qualities until, of course, he makes a a lover of of children, uh, bearing many children. But uh, Anna, or Anna, there it is, Anna, okay, and there again, but uh, Anna in the Bible, remember her? She didn't have children, but was she honored? She got to hold the baby Jesus. One of the first women outside of Mary or outside of the family that held the Messiah. Was that an honor? Big time. And so God has ways of honoring those women and making up for what possibly, or well, whatever he has decided in their lives that they are and are not to have children. Can God, and of course society might condemn a person for something they have no control over, but God doesn't. And so God has ways of making up for the things that he knows before a person was ever born about their capabilities. Judy was reading some book about Henry the Seventh or Henry the Eighth, I guess, and he kept wanting to kill the women because they didn't have, but it was his problem. You know, he kept having girls. Well, it's the guy, it's the man that determines whether it's girl or guy. He'd kill well, Jane Seymour and a couple others he killed because he wanted a boy. What's that? Anne Berlin. Didn't he kill Jane Seymour? No, that's the actress. Okay, whatever. But, you know, all those different, there was a Seymour in there somewhere there, wasn't there? Okay, so uh, I don't get into all, I mean, I, I like reading history, but it, you get into all those kings and their marriages and you lose me. Uh, but uh, there again, we see that but God has ways of making up. If he takes away something, then he has something that he can replace it with for those who love him. All things work together for good to them to love God. And oh my, the people, that God, the barren women that God has used mightily in the church and in his ministry. And yet, what a blessing it is for those women. I, you know, when I, I grew up in a generation where, you know, don't, don't trust anybody over 30. Um, and then I remember having conversations uh, in college or whatever, and a lot of the girls were saying, we, I don't want any children because it's going to be a bad world and all this kind of stuff. But then uh, either by Facebook or by word of mouth or whatever, I would you know, just you know, hear about these girls. And, they, and they're 39, 40 years old and they have their first kid. Why? Because they just could not go without that. There's something about the maternal instinct. And I just read uh, some highfalutin professor just today said that uh, the maternal instinct is man-made. It was man-made. No, that's something God says. Two things are not, uh, will never be satisfied. What are they? The empty grave and the barren womb. It just won't be said. There's women, there's something about a child that very few women go through life without wanting to have a child. And I don't understand all that either. You ladies know more about that than I do. But, uh, there again, there's, uh, that's just inherent in human nature. And if God did it, then no, it wasn't man-made. Now, unfortunately, some of the things either woman-made or man-made, whenever we condemn people for things that they are totally out of, uh, that's totally out of their possibilities, 
then that's our problem. But uh, God says, I, I have ways of making up, and I can, and notice he grants the barren woman a house. Think about uh, the barren women. Did Sarah have a house? Did Hannah have a house? Did Elizabeth have a house? They didn't have children, but they had loyal husbands. So God has ways of taking care of his own. Okay. So and then again, at the very end here, we see that uh, hallelujah. So this is, someone said this is a song meant to be sung over and over again. You start with hallelujah and you close with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay. Any questions or comments about what we looked at tonight? <clears throat> 